<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy, and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today, I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. Today, I have as my guest, Yotam Polazar, who works with Israel. He tells the incredible story of how Israel, together with the help of the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Albania, Tajikistan, some private individuals and some foundations, how they helped save 167 Afghans about a year ago during the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. Really an amazing story, very inspirational. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn from it. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So Yotam Polizar from Israel Aid, I'm so excited to, uh, that you joined the show. You know, your reputation is uh, really, really amazing. The reputation of Israel Aid, Israel Aid rather, is really amazing. You have dealt with crises all around the world. Syrian refugees, Japan and the Philippines after natural disasters. You're an Israeli civil society organization. So before we get to the real topic today, which is how you pulled off this miraculous um, evacuation in Afghanistan where you saved about 167 Afghans. Let's think about that, an Israeli organization saving 167 Afghans. 
Why don't you tell us a little bit about you, yourself, and and Israel? Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was born in a, in a small moshav in a tiny village in the north part of Israel, not far from Tzfat. Um, I never thought that I'll get involved in, in this kind of work around the world. Um, and um, I think before my uh, IDF service uh, in Israel, I did um, uh, volunteering gear um, working with um, Ethiopian Jews who recently arrived to Israel. And I think that's where I developed my, my passion for, uh, for service, but also for um, working with people um, from other cultures and backgrounds. And, and, and that's where my real passion is. My, my passion is not only for service and humanitarian aid, but also how these um, terrible tragedies like Afghanistan, like the tsunami in Japan in Fukushima, like the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the Syrian, um, you know, civil war that's still ongoing, even though nobody speaks about it, or or even now in in Ukraine, how can these tragedies um, become an opportunity to to build bridges and change people's perspective? Um, and, and that started very early for me, um, and and still continue until this day. So that's kind of my passion and where I'm coming from. And you know, you mentioned bridge building, and I'm a huge believer in bridge building. We come at it from different backgrounds. I'm an American Jew. Both of us are Israel supporters. But I witnessed also on the ground that when you begin to build bridges, people take a step back and think to themselves, at least good-hearted people, rational people, they think, oh, maybe these things that I read about Israel, maybe they're not true. So how is it that you are, um, how do you find yourself welcomed in these areas uh, knowing that you're Israeli and you, you know, you proudly, I think, show the Israeli flag when you go help to people take a step back and think to themselves, wow, maybe this is really what Israel is all about. You know, it's, it's interesting because, because when you go to sort of these disaster areas, like, like Afghanistan, like, you know, a Syrian refugee camp, um, people don't, expect to see Israeli aid workers there for sure. Uh, but the responses that we got from the Syrians or the Afghans uh, were what I call, they, they were positively shocked. <laughs> um, and, and um, you know, obviously for security reasons, we sometimes have to um, kind of hide our identity. For instance, in the case of the Afghan evacuation, um, these people didn't know that they were being evacuated by a group of Israelis. Uh, until they actually left the country. Uh, again, we didn't want to add additional risk. Once they left the country, they 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 saw uh, the the shirts Israel and and they learned that we're from Israel. And and actually, um, surprisingly or not surprisingly, um, they were all very happy about it, and, and they didn't have any kind of negative reaction. And and I'm I'm half joking that now you know about two hundred Afghan, almost two hundred Afghans are sending me uh, and my team members um, Shabbat Shalom every Shabbat, you know. Uh, um, and, and they're all they're all very very happy and very positive about it. And, and you find out that people are people, um, and that people um, you know learn whatever they learn from the media. But once they meet other people and, and we connect on on kind of the deepest level in the most difficult and, and complicated situation, you know, people really do change their perspective. So now let's zero in on, on Afghanistan. It's about a year out since the rescue operations, since the disaster, almost the fall of Afghanistan, if you will, to the Taliban. 
How did Israel end up in Afghanistan? I, you know, I, I kind of get Syria, a uh, neighboring country and all that, but how did you get involved in Afghanistan? It was actually very um, random. And the truth of the matter was that, um, you know, we do at Israel work in very remote places. We have projects in uh, Colombia with uh, refugees from Venezuela. We work in, you know, in, in really remote islands, um, in the Pacific, like Vanuatu, that was devastated by by um, cyclones, but um, but Afghanistan, we really, I I, I personally, and, and no no one from our team was uh, thought that we actually have an added value here. We didn't have a team in Afghanistan. Obviously, Afghanistan and Israel don't have diplomatic relations. Um, so when um, the Taliban took over um, last a year ago in August. Um, a lot of people started contacting us and my, my default answer to them was that unfortunately we, we, we can't get involved. And, you know, if people will be um, um, fleeing Afghanistan to other countries in refugee camps, we'll look into it. In fact, when we were helping Syrian refugees, um, uh, there were at the same time, there were quite a few refugees from Afghanistan that we, we supported. So we did have some uh, background in helping Afghan refugees, but only outside of Afghanistan. Um, and then in late August, uh, in one day, I think it was it was August, j- just really before the Americans uh, pulled out, um, there was there were three phone calls that came in um, that changed everything. The first one was from um, a friend, um, Ronnie Abulafia, who is an Israeli um, filmmaker, whose best friend Dana Harman was. Um, who's a journalist, um, was in touch with a group of female activists, um, the, the girls, the Afghan girls robotics team, um, who, who were desperate to be evacuated. And, and she reached out to see if Israel can help. And, and my answer to her was no, but let me look into it. Then another phone call came from um, uh, a friend who is working with uh, the Israeli Canadian philanthropist Sylvan Adams, that I think you, you know very well, um, who was trying to help the first Afghan girls cycling team because he's very much into cycling. And, uh, and again, my answer to him was, I don't know what we can do, but let me, let me, check, let me check it out. And then the third phone call was the most interesting one because that came from a friend who is actually European from uh, an Arab country originally who was working with us uh, when we helped Syrian refugees in Greece and he told me that he had contacts in Afghanistan that may be able to kind of ensure safe evacuation. And so we partnered with this guy. And, 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 and uh, again, we didn't know if it will be possible, but one thing led to another and I sort of got um, dived into it. And also, you know, I'm, I'm now running the organization, so I'm not usually getting involved, you know, in, in the actual field work. Um, but that was very, very different. So, so when this guy told me he has a way of making it happen, I said, okay, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. At the end of the interview, I'm going to ask you for some inspirational words for my young listeners, but you touch upon something really important in your last answer, which is, you know, people like Roni and Dana, who I don't know, the filmmaker and the journalist, Sylvan, who I do know very, very well. I'm a huge fan of his. He does some amazing work. Um, sometimes it takes a partnership between ordinary people and organizations such as yours to light something up that ends up saving lives, changing the world, 
Uh, so I want to stress that anybody who ever has an idea shouldn't think it's too hard because if you have the idea and then you could partner with a group like yours, you really can make a difference. Um, and I want to focus for a moment on who your volunteers were on the ground. Who were these extraordinarily brave people who actually managed to pull this off? Can you tell us about them a little bit? Sure. So, um, so we had, um, a team of incredible Afghans who were both, you know, the evacuees, the people that we evacuated, but also some of them helped us organize it. And we had this, um, uh, and, and these are all group of kind of, 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 of human rights activists in Afghanistan that included, you know, female judges, uh, we said, you know, female athletes, the cyclists, um, scientists, um, some, some local leaders and, and, and local politicians, media people. Um, so we had a WhatsApp group with them. And then we had our group and our group involved was, was me, was uh, my friend who um, I won't name just to keep his privacy, but, um, and uh, who was, was working with me with the Syrian refugees. We had Dana and Ronnie who was kind of, who got really involved in this operation and was with me on the ground. And another um, local journalist from Tajikistan, uh, whose name is Anahita, uh, who was kind of a local person. We were on the ground in Tajikistan on the border with Afghanistan. And that's where we managed um, this operation from. It was all done on WhatsApp or signal groups. That's how we kind of coordinated the locations. Um, and, and, um, and that's how we were able to pull it off. One of the most uh, complicated uh, parts of this operation was that at some point we, we needed to um, create passports for some of these Afghans because they didn't have passports. So you're able to um, reach out to, uh, to, a former, um, to a former Afghan diplomat through, uh, for another person that you may uh, be familiar with, Ali Oren, who is the... Um, well, ex-wife of Ambassador Michael Oren, um, who's one of her friends from her time in D.C., was the wife of the Afghan ambassador to Washington at that time. Now, this ambassador obviously is not representing the Taliban, but he was still an Afghan diplomat who had passports. So we were able to reach out to him, and he sent passports to us in Tajikistan, and we um, took this passport and sent them over the border, across the border to Afghanistan, um, to a group of 41 Afghans who didn't have passports. These passports, um, in, in the second, actually, evacuation we did, uh, were so crucial because that's the only way these Afghans were able to travel. Um, but, um, but, but this operation, I think, was very interesting um, of course, because of the you know the, the type of, of of risks, but it, it was it was a combination of humanitarian mission and a diplomatic mission. We had to connect with um, so many government officials. You know, who are we to talk to all these presidents? But we, you know, got in touch with the president of Tajikistan, and we convinced him with the help of Sylvan Adams, with the help of another um, Jewish. Um, um, anonymous foundation to uh, to open his border to accept these people in Tajikistan, but he told us that he can't have them stay in Tajikistan. They have to go somewhere else, and that's when we reached the UAE, our new best friends, 
uh, and when they heard that there's a group of young Afghan female activists evacuated by an Israeli organization, they immediately said yes and took them. So, you know, it was, it was a really interesting combination of, of both humanitarian and, and kind of crazy intense operation and, and a lot of diplomatic push. And a lot of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Uh, you know, that passport story really reminds me of the Japanese diplomat during the time of World War II who saved Jews by issuing passports. Um, really quite a story. Uh, we, we call this Afghan diplomat, we call him our Afghan Sugihara. Sugihara is the Japanese diplomat. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I could not stop thinking about that story as exactly. Yep. So tell us about the rescue operation itself. You know, the U.S. unfortunately failed. We all saw the terrible footage of thousands of people trying to get to the airport, people clinging to the airplanes, falling off the airplanes, a suicide bombing. I imagine when you were looking at those videos, you must have thought that the situation looked pretty grim. Yet you went ahead and, and pulled this off. How complicated, uh, how dangerous was this mission? It was very complicated. It was probably the most intense thing I've ever done. And, and um, you know, we talked a little bit before about my background. I was in the Ebola. I was with, with Syrian refugees in the tsunami in Fukushima. But uh, it, was, it was very complicated and very intense. And, and a lot of things got wrong throughout the process. But in short, the way it worked was that, um, as mentioned, um, we had um, our group, um, and we had my friend who uh, was working with us before, who had contacts inside Afghanistan, who um, enabled us to secure safe passage. Um, we realized, you know, when we saw these pictures from the airport that um, evacuating people from the airport is not going to work. So very quickly, and I think in a very Israeli fashion, we kind of said, okay, let's find a different way that no one thought about before. And we said, let's do it by land. And let's do it by land through Tajikistan, which is a neighboring country that no one, um, you know, no one thought of before as an option for, for evacuation. And so very quickly we arranged a bus and, and this bus picked up these um, female activists from different parts and different shelters and hiding places in Kabul and elsewhere. Um, and this bus made it to the border. Um, this bus, the first bus was with 42 um, uh, female activists and their family members. Um, and, and they got to the border pretty easily and pretty quickly, surprisingly. They passed through the Taliban checkpoints. They were covered with burqas, so no one knew their identity. And we had this local contact inside who was able to ensure this safe passage. The problem started when we reached the border because the border was closed. And we had, and that's where we have to pull, we had to pull all of our diplomatic connections that we didn't know we have with Tajikistan to um, convince them to open the border. And when we finally did, they said, okay, we'll open the border, we'll let them pass, but they have to leave the country immediately. So we had to find another country. And that's when we got in touch with the UAE and it reached all the way to the crown prince in Abu Dhabi, who personally um, approved this group. Um, to come into Abu Dhabi. Um, and then when the group made it to Abu Dhabi, the goal was uh, eventually to, to um, bring it to the US or Canada, but we knew, we knew it would take time with the bureaucracy and, and you know, the long kind of migration process. Um, we also realized that there are, first of all, thousands of other Afghans at risk, including family members of these, um, 
of these first 42 uh, women that we evacuated. So, you know, with a lot of chutzpah, and I'm sure your listeners know what chutzpah is, but uh, with a lot of typical Israeli chutzpah, we said, okay, one rescue is not enough. Let's do another one. And, um, and we organized a bigger group of um, 125 people, free buses, basically. And we thought, okay, we figured it out. We can, we can do it just the same way and we can send them to the border. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. And, and when they got to the border, the Taliban didn't let them pass and, in fact, um, um, arrested them. And that's when we had to bring in some connections from Qatar and the Afghans themselves that we were working with were able to pull out some connections and, and they were released, but the border was still closed. So we realized we have to find another way. And that's when we had to get in touch with, you know, this Afghan diplomat and send these passports. And once we were able to send these passports and some of them were confiscated by the Taliban. So again, we had to find a way to negotiate with the Taliban and take these passports out. Long story short, um, we were able to arrange an, an evacuation flight, not from the main airport in Kabul, which was completely closed, but from another airport in another city called Mazar Sharif in a northern city, um, an evacuation that we arranged. And, um, and again, with the help of, of Sylvan Adams and, and this um, other Jewish family foundation, um, very quickly we were able to charter planes and, um, and evacuate these people safely, this time not to Abu Dhabi, but to Albania. This is another interesting story because the prime minister of Albania, Eddie Rama, who, um, who is, is, is a big um, you know, friend of Israel and the Jewish people, um, decided that Albania, because of their historical role in, in, in the Second World War, again, I didn't know that I felt very ignorant, but Albania is the one country in Europe that ended World War II with a higher number of Jews than it started. I didn't know that either. You see, so, so we both learned. It's remarkable. So, so the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Rama said, we, we have a role to play here. And, and he decided to take 4,000 Afghans, including our group, especially when he heard there was a group that um, um, Israel was involved with. Um, he decided to take this group and give them this temporary shelter in Albania, uh, which is where our other group stayed for almost eight months until finally they were resettled in Canada uh, only two months ago, basically. Um, so that was kind of the end of our, of our main operation, if you will. Typical Israeli chutzpah, well, we'll figure it out. And you did, and you did, and you had help along the way. Uh, the story about the UAE doesn't surprise me at all. Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed is a, is a very um, sincere leader, a very humble guy. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that he had his hands in this um, personally. Um, it does strike me as interesting. So you had the Abraham Accords, um, UAE, Israel. We all know about the business ties that continue to grow uh, friendships continue to grow, and now humanitarian efforts. And then you have Qatar, which I like to call a country that is not yet a signatory to the Abraham Accords. And uh, people may not realize that Israel, Qatar, UAE worked hard on this mission to save Afghans who were in a very, very dangerous state. Um, I think that's that's a beautiful thing. There's, there's actually an interesting part that I, I forgot to mention on that on that on the Abraham Accords. Um, kind of uh, context, because um, 
once the group made it to Abu Dhabi, that's when I actually flew in and joined my team. And, and, and I, I remember the plane landing in Abu Dhabi at 2 a.m. We received like a welcoming ceremony that's, you know, usually saved for whatever high level officials. And, um, and, the, and we kept this whole mission very quiet for obvious reasons, because of security reasons with press and social media and all that. The first tweet about this uh, evacuation mission came from a high-level official in the uh, Emirati Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and he called it the first um, joint humanitarian mission of the Abraham Accords. Um, so they, so they, so they actually saw it, you know, in that in that eyes, in that context, and and I don't think that would have been possible without these the Abraham Accords. I think that's true, and I think that these countries are serious about making the world a better place. So I'm glad that you partnered with them on this. Let's let's move to the tougher part of the conversation. How bad do you think it is in Afghanistan today, and is there hope for the extended families and friends of these people that you managed to rescue? Um, it is it is it is um, the the tough or or the sad part of, of our conversation, uh, Jason. It's um, the situation from humanitarian perspective. Put aside human rights, which we'll talk about in a second, is as bad as it has ever been. Um, you know, there was uh, huge issues with food security before the Taliban took over. It got much worse after. Um, you know, Afghanistan is a country that's very much dependent on on, on uh, foreign aid, and uh, for obvious reasons, a lot of the government, a lot of the international organizations are very hesitant um, to work in Afghanistan. Now, if you add to that the uh, crisis in Ukraine, which not only takes um, the world's attention, but also take a lot of the foreign aid and uh, and 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 created another um, crisis when it comes to grain and wheat, um, which is you know the main food in uh, in Afghanistan. So the humanitarian situation is is horrible, horrible. Now with the human rights on the human rights side uh, of things, the Taliban in the beginning we saw that um, try to put a nice face to the world that they you know in order to to gain some legitimacy. Um, that you know that to show that they're they're more advanced and and they were at least in the beginning allowing uh, women and girls to go to schools for instance and to get jobs unfortunately that changed in the last few months and um and girls are not allowed to go to school um girls are not allowed to um work in many of the jobs um and, and so so especially the situation of women in afghanistan is is it's terrible and it's a it's a real tragedy and um we're still getting um hundreds if not thousands of messages and requests for help and support um from afghans from family members so that is really the desperate part and, and again the, the going back to ukraine it's it's much more difficult to get support from for afghanistan right now um, it's not even easy, so so easy to get support for Ukraine anymore because it's also, uh, you know, not in the headlines anymore as it used to be a couple of months ago. But but comparing to Afghanistan, really nobody talks about Afghanistan, and unfortunately, we know that media attention equals to donor attention, and and so I really do hope that now a year after, 
you know, at least some people in terms of the decision-making, the philanthropy community will look into Afghanistan and, 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 and see the situation and will decide and will understand that, you know, the support for Afghans, both the refugees and inside Afghanistan is, is more crucial than ever. I think that's a really important point. But unfortunately, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, people hardly talk about Syria, right? Uh, so much suffering going on there and not enough help. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't help Ukraine. That's important as well. But we can't Absolutely. forget that there are other crises around the world that also require attention. Let's talk about you and the many others involved in Israel. What drives you to work on these critical, amazing, and dangerous, in this case, super dangerous missions? You know, it's, it's, it's a hard question. Um, I, I think my personal motivation is, is to connect with people on the deepest level um, and, and to try with, you know, the limited resources and time and, 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 uh, and, and power we have to, to do some good uh, with all this darkness um, that's surrounding us and that's, you know, you know man-made disasters, uh, nature-related disaster, climate-related disasters. I mean, there's so much going on. Um, obviously, for me, also the building bridges aspect is very important um, that I mentioned before. But I think my team, the Israel team around the world, it's a team of about 250 people, Israelis and, and non-Israelis. Many, many of our team members are, are, are local members of, of the communities we work in in, in 14 countries right now. Uh, I think I think really the the the, the motivation is is pure um, pure energy, pure motivation to help um, and to work side by side with local communities in in kind of the long journey to recovery. I think a lot of people know about Israel that uh, were kind of the um, Michigan the crazy Israelis that jump on a plane whenever there's a crisis somewhere in the world. It's true, it is part of our DNA and it's part of who we are. But I think more important and think something that less people know about is actually our long-term efforts. Usually we stay with communities in countries for about five to seven years um, to help communities not only again um, in the immediate relief, but to help them build back better um, and to help them... Um, to help them uh, uh, kind of get some, you know, build their capacity to support themselves. And again, our, our ultimate goal is that we won't be uh, needed in these places. And, um, and, and the goal is that once we leave, the community has the capacity to support itself. And we've seen it happen time and time again. It's a great segue to the last question. And I get, this, I get asked this question a lot by my younger listeners. They're looking for inspiration. The world is complicated more than ever today, complex, dangerous, divided. Um, it's, it's a tough place. And people are looking for meaning. Um, people are looking for ways to help, to help make the world a better place. Many, perhaps most, are not the Michigana, right? The ones who are going to be able to jump on a plane and go into a dangerous situation, whether it's Afghanistan or a natural disaster place. How would you recommend that they find a way to get involved to help bring some light into the darkness? I think, you know, I'm seeing it with, um, with the younger generation. Uh, I, I used to do a lot, pre-COVID at least, I used to do a lot of, um, of uh, uh, lectures and presentation in campuses, uh, in high schools, um, 
both Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, and and I, I'm actually very inspired because I see the younger generation do really care. Um, and I think there's so many ways to get involved. Um, first of all, we can't underestimate, you know, and, and I think people sometimes when they hear me talk, they said, okay, we, you know, we want to jump on a plane. I said, okay, that's great, but we have to find a way. I mean, it's a whole system. We have a team at Israel that's for, that's in charge of our legal work or administration or logistics or procurement or finance. I mean, there's so there, there's needs for working hands, not only to pull people out of the rubbles or out of the boats, we really need, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole system of support that we need. And obviously we need a way to, to fund um, these operations cause, you know, it's a non-for-profit and, and, and we can't, you know, underestimate the value of, of any kind of support. So if people want to get involved, you know, the first and the most important way is to help us continue do this work. Um, because as I said, the needs are long-term. Uh, and not just immediate. And and unfortunately, the world forgot about Afghanistan and the world will forget about Ukraine. Um, but we won't forget about these people and we will be there in the long run. And, and we need partners to help us um, in this journey. So that's number one. Number two, I do think that there are practical ways of getting involved wherever you are, whether it's in your hometown in Chicago um, or, or in Toronto, where we have a huge group of, of Afghan refugees that we evacuated, or in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem. Um, we've seen how a lot of the people who worked with Israel or volunteered with Israel or interned with us are getting involved in many other local initiatives, and they are, you know, the future leaders. So, um, so I, I, I don't want to underestimate these kind of local initiatives that are taking place everywhere. Um, it, is, uh, it is a movement, uh, and I think we have a significant role to play. Yotam Palazar, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story, the story of Israel, and uh, the amazing work that you do, the dangerous work that you do to help save lives and make the world a better place. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Quite an incredible story that Yotam tells. The work that Israel does is remarkable. They were helped by several countries. One, a signatory to the Abraham Accords, the United Arab Emirates. Another, who I like to call not yet a signatory to the Abraham Accords, Qatar. They were also helped by Albania, Tajikistan. It was a daring rescue, but they changed the lives of 167 Afghans during a tremendous disaster. As Yotam says, people are forgetting already about Afghanistan. They shouldn't, we shouldn't, nor should we forget about Syria and certainly not Ukraine and the many other disasters going around the world. We end the conversation with some inspirational thoughts from Yotam. I hope you listen. This reminds me very much about the work that I did at the White House and the book that I just came out with, In the Path of Abraham. The title is Because We Are on a Path. It's a long, complicated, tortured path toward making the world a better place and toward peace. Don't forget to pick up your copy today. It's available on Amazon or wherever you get your, po- your books. Again, In the Path of Abraham. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.